The passage in Luke 2 will set the scene for the text I want us to consider together this evening in 2 Corinthians 8. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, beginning the reading in verse 1. Let's hear the Lord's word. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And God add the blessing only he can give upon the reading of his word. Let's bow our heads for a moment in prayer. Let's seek the Lord together. Father in heaven, we come in Jesus' name, ere we begin to preach the word, acknowledging the need of divine intervention. Leave not thy servant to himself, to his notes. Fill him, we pray, with that message from thee to our hearts. May he be the Lord's messenger in the Lord's message. And may thy people know that thou art in thy house tonight, that thou hast come to speak to them personally. May each one sense that the Lord has come to sit down beside them and to speak directly to their heart's needs. O Lord, give us eyes, give us eyes to behold thy Son, we pray, to look off unto Christ. In his name we ask it. Amen. And amen. It was a very clear and unmistakable mark of humiliation that was put upon the Lord Jesus Christ when, even though, even though he was the Son of God, very God of very God, even though he was, as the prophet Haggai puts it, the desire of all nations, that he was born in obscurity. And his coming into the world, be he who he was, was taken little notice of. It was all part of the Lord emptying himself and making himself of no reputation. One would think that if the only begotten Son of God must be brought into this world that he should be received with all the honor 
and ceremony that this world could muster. That crowns and scepters would be laid at his feet. And that kings and the highest of nobility would come and bow at his feet and confess they were but his servants. Indeed, it was just that kind of a Messiah that the Jews expected. They expected that the Christ that would come into this world would come with great pomp and circumstance. Since he was the one they believed who was going to make all the earthly kings bow at his feet and sometimes more their itching was they would bow at their feet. But the scripture states that the birth of the Messiah was lowly and went unnoticed by almost everyone. That is amazing. He came into the world and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. He was despised and rejected of men. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. We despised him and esteemed him not. But this is how it had to be for Jesus Christ. It could have not been any other way than that for his entrance into this world. In order to fulfill all of the holy demands of God's law so that lawbreakers could be saved and accounted as perfectly righteous in the sight of that law, in the sight of God, Christ had to be, he had to be, as Paul plainly puts it in Galatians chapter 4, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law. To be a savior of sinners demanded that he suffer the ultimate penalty placed upon those who break God's law. And the ultimate penalty is death. But the only way for God to die was to become a man. So the Old Testament scripture prophesied of this this coming Messiah whose name would be called Emmanuel, God with us. God. God clothed in flesh, walked and ministered on this earth for 33 years before he went to that place that was appointed for him, the place of the cross. From his cradle to the cross, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ was one of humiliation and shame. He had to identify with sinners. He had to get as close to sinners as he could get and be without sin. Laid in a feeding trough at his birth. This is the Son of God. Laid in a feeding trough. You never think of putting your newborn infant in a feeding trough. 
The Son of God, from that place of nakedness, born of the virgin, laid in a feeding trough, he hangs naked at the end of his life on a Roman cross. Shame. Humiliation. It is this very fact of the Lord's great humiliation that introduces us to the text before us tonight. That text is in verse 9. We read it. For ye know the grace. Oh, what an important word. Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. Now in context, Paul was dealing with the Corinthian church about a, a problem they had. And that was giving the money that they had promised to give for the, those suffering from famine in Jerusalem. They had gotten together and collected the money, but it wasn't being sent. And he was urging them, now you know you need to do what you promised to do. At the opening of this chapter, he, he, he talks, does he, does he not, about uh, those in Macedonia who, who were dirt poor, and yet out of their poverty they gave a tremendous gift and wouldn't take no for an answer, though Paul said, no, you, you guys can't afford this. No, we're, we're giving. And it wasn't just that. They first gave themselves to God, and that's why they were able to give such a generous gift. And so Paul is urging them to give. That's the motive in context behind the Lord Jesus Christ being made poor. In other words, it wasn't enough to say that they had received the grace of God. There had to be proof to it. And there always has to be proof to our professions that we have received God's grace. Actions always speak louder than words. And so the apostles... So the Apostle Paul asked these Corinthians to do what they had promised to do to carry through to show that they had actually experienced the grace of God. You see, when grace comes into a life and makes a soul gracious, that soul becomes a giving soul. The stinginess is dealt with. The holding on and I can't let go disappears because grace has come in and flooded the soul. That's why the Lord loves the cheerful or the hilarious, the word is, giver. It's not a problem. It's far better to give than to receive. That's what he's teaching. And that's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace and giving go hand in hand. When you find the grace of God in life, you'll find a heart that's willing to give to God. And to illustrate his point, Paul reminds them of the grace of Christ and says, Ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be made rich. So what I want to speak a few moments about tonight is this subject. Poor sinners becoming rich by a rich Savior becoming poor. That's what the text's about. Poor sinners becoming rich by a rich Savior becoming poor. I confess up front, I'm not going to tell you anything you haven't heard before. 
what is needed as the Holy Spirit to take these old truths and refresh us with them. We hear them again. We don't just say, well, I've heard that before. If that's going to be our approach, then woe is us. It's, Lord, speak to me. I need to hear the old gospel again and again and again. Let's look first at the poor sinners. That's first, the poor sinners. Paul says to these Corinthians in Corinth that they had become rich. Now, that assumes that they had been poor. If they, you become rich, it means that you weren't rich at one time. You had, you had been poor. And, and the wealth and the poverty in this verse is not a reference to material things, but to spiritual. The riches here are not about the, the health and wealth gospel of the charismatics, where, you know, if you really believe, if you really have faith, you'll become wealthy and you won't suffer sickness. That's nonsense. The poverty here is not describing someone who is financially insolvent. So while he had been dealing with the actual material giving from the churches of Macedonia and the Corinthian church, he's now switching to the real heart of the matter, and that's spiritual. He knows if that is understood, if that's believed by these Corinthian believers, they won't have any problem of letting go of the money that they had been holding. When Paul indicates that at one time they were poor, he's talking about their spiritual state. What they had by the way of the true riches. The, 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 the true riches being things like pardon for sin and justification in the eyes of God and acceptance with God and, and adoption into the family of God and the great gift of the Holy Spirit and so forth. Those are the real riches And in the case of every one of these believers in the church of Corinth, they were, like all of us at one time, they were completely bankrupt spiritually. Remember Christ's statement in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That being poor in spirit speaks of spiritual Poverty, they realize that they have nothing at all to recommend themselves to God. They're spiritually bankrupt. Nothing to earn their way into God's favor. Nothing in them that would move God to pity them. Penniless spiritually, penniless What does that look like as we think about ourselves prior to Christ making us rich? When we think about ourselves as being poor, poor, bankrupt sinners. You know, you never want to forget what you were before Christ saved you. Paul took that approach often. He reminded the Lord's people of what the Lord delivered them from. Such were some of you. And he lists these murderers and sodomites and everything else. And some of you were like that. He didn't keep it from them and make everything rosy. Don't forget what the Lord delivered you from. Don't forget the kind of life he saved you from. Don't forget the, the eternity that you could have been in had it not been for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We get there, brothers and sisters, I can tell you one thing, we're hard of heart, and we're cold, and we're distant, and we have left our first love. It doesn't matter all the outward actions that we might have. We may come to church, sing the hymnal, give the tithes, and all that stuff. But if we have forgotten the depths where we were, the poverty that was ours, we really cease to appreciate the grace of God that's in Christ Jesus. It's not a good road to be on. That means bankrupt of personal righteousness. Since all of our righteousnesses are, as you know the word, filthy rags. Clothed in rags of sin. Without bankrupt any spiritual strength. Because we were dead in sin. No power at all. No ability to change our condition. We were bankrupt in love. We certainly couldn't love God. The only reason we were able to love God is because he first loved us and showed that love to us. And his spirit shed abroad that love in our hearts. And then we were able to love the Lord truly. Really love him. But apart from that, we couldn't love the Lord and we really could not love others. It wasn't real love. Wasn't real love. That only belongs to believers. Real love comes from God. We were bankrupt of light. We walked on in darkness. We were bankrupt of liberty. We were in a, a, a prison house. Sin was a prison house. We were slaves to Satan. We couldn't break the chains, nor did we want to break the chains. We were quite content to serve him. We loved it. Because we were bankrupt as far as any liberty and light and love. We certainly couldn't pay the debt that we owed. Every one of us is pictured by the parable of the prodigal son. Living in degradation and filth. Covered in rags, nothing to satisfy the emptiness of the soul, no man gave to him. He was in abject poverty. That describes every poor, poor sinner. Never ever forget that the Lord as Hannah put it in her prayer of thanksgiving to God when she brought her boy Samuel to the temple. He has taken us from among the dunghill and set us among princes. I'll say more about the impact of believing that truth toward the end of the message, but I want you to remember that, what you came from. We were all a bunch of bankrupt sinners. Poverty stricken. And you would have been content to remain like that. Let's look in the second place at the poor Savior. He became poor. That word poor comes from a root word that means beggar. Beggar. Hence, to be poor. He became poor like a beggar. That kind of poverty. 
I want to underline the fact that Christ was not poor out of necessity. That is true of some people, that they're, they're born into poverty, and they don't have any control of what they're born into. They're born into a poor family. But the poverty of Christ was purely voluntary on his part. Peter Paul says, though he was rich, it speaks of a time before he came into this world, and at that time the Son of God was rich, and he was rich. Like you and I cannot begin to imagine wealth. Think about it just, it'll help you appreciate the poverty of Christ. He he was rich in possessions. You talk about owning a lot. He owned the entire universe. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Everything was his. Every galaxy, every planet, every star, every asteroid, all, all was his. He owned the cattle on a thousand hills. All the gold and silver was his. Everything he owned. He was rich also in servants. I I don't know how many myriad, myriad of angels actually waited to do his beck and call. He was their Lord and Master. He was wealthy in that. They adored and they worshipped him continually in glory. He was the glory of Emmanuel's land. They rejoiced over him continually. He, he, he was their delight. Christ was also rich in something else. He was rich in honor. He was God over all, blessed forever, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit in honor and power and glory. What honor? I, I can't begin to understand it. He was exalted above all principalities and powers and every name that is named. But he was also rich in something else that you and I were bankrupt in. He was rich in love. He had perfect love for the Father and perfect love for the Spirit. And the Father and the Spirit had perfect love for him. They dwelt for who knows, sorry for the human expression, who knows for how long in perfect love for each other. This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased, so loved by his Father. He was also, as you could understand, he was rich in happiness. You can't imagine or conceive of the Savior knowing Prior to his incarnation, his humiliation, you can't imagine him knowing any kind of sorrow or grief or want. He lacked nothing. If I can use, again, this human language, but kind of says it, there's nothing he could ever want that he didn't have. All that heart could wish for. He was, in fact, essentially happiness in itself. His heart was never once distressed by some care. His soul never disturbed by grief. Never any tears did he weep. 
Never a heart that was broken. He didn't know that. He was rich. But the Son of God of his own accord became poor. And he became poor because we were poor. And the only way to change that, our poverty, was for Christ to become poor. So let's talk about for a second. Let's consider the poverty of Christ. How about the poverty of his humanity? Christ made himself poor simply in becoming a man. The Son of God is conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. amazing. God the Son conceived and delivered as a blood-covered infant into this world. He was born as this babe lying in absolute weakness in the arms of his mother. I can't get my head around it. The one that has owns all the universe because he created it all is now a weak little nine-month-old baby being held by his mother. Fragile. Needing to be cared for. Needing to be fed. Protected. The God before whom all heaven bows with deepest solemnity and all was found lying in a manger because there was no room for them in that inn. It was crowded. It was the taxing, the, the uh, getting the census ordered by Caesar. You got to go to your own home city where you were born and the place was packed. Now. Yeah. They adored him, yes, but there was poverty there. Something we need to pray for a deeper understanding of, the Holy Spirit to give us that, this this poverty of his humanity. How low he actually went to make us rich. Then there's the poverty, not, not only of his humanity, but the poverty of his home. His birthplace was some kind of a stable, whether it was uh, a literal shed or shack of some sort, or many think it was a cave where they kept their cows and their sheep, the cattle and their sheep and the goats. He was born into poverty. In many respects, Jesus Christ was, you could call him the king, the king of the poor. Who did the shepherds announce his birth to, or I should say the angels. It was these poor shepherds. It's like from the very word go, he's going to associate with the poverty of his people. What do you think they thought when they saw Christ the Lord wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in this trough? Do you think there was disgust on their part? Not on your life. 
here is one who will identify with us so poor. They knew he was the Christ child. It was announced to them. And it wasn't disdain at all. They welcomed it and they worshipped him. He's not going to be like the king that, of Rome that seeks to quash us and has no mercy, no understanding of poverty at all. No, this one would, oh, he would associate with us. He'll have time for the poor. He'll have time for the outcast. He'll have time for the rejected. And surely his whole life showed that he did. He was known as the friend of publicans and sinners the outcasts, the ones that no one wanted anything to do with. You know, one thing that is true in the earthly realm is doubly true in the spiritual realm. When you think about how Christ identified with people, get that now, he identified with common, ordinary, everyday people. Because they were poor did not faze him. He would welcome them. Because they were great sinners did not stop him from going to them and seeking to save them. If ever people felt like there is a leader among them, that he knows their burdens and he feels their sorrows and has a real interest in their concerns, that, that man has won their hearts and they have no problem following him. No problem. If that is not discerned, if there is not a sense that this, this man who says he's a leader, who wants to be a leader, he has no time, no interest in my needs and, and, and my concerns and my life, and he can't identify with me, then I have no interest in listening to what he has to say. Can you not look upon the Lord Jesus Christ lying in that feeding trough in that stable and say that that, He's won my heart. He'll identify with me in that kind of poverty. He's bone of my bone. He's flesh of my flesh. He understands what it is to have nothing. He understands what it is to be nothing in the eyes of men. To be rejected and despised. He gets it. I'll follow him wherever he leads. After he was born, Christ lived a life of poverty for many years in Nazareth. Nazareth of all places. No good thing comes out of Nazareth. That was a saying. He was a carpenter. The supposed Suppose, son of the village carpenter in Nazareth. I've often wondered what he did for 30 years. I've wondered at times what, what kind of child he was. What did he do day in and day out? What words of wisdom 
did he utter, even as a child, because he was the perfect child. He was the sinless child. Even at 12 years of age, he's in the temple and answering the questions of the know-it-alls, the scholars, and asking them questions. What kind of child must he have been? But if that had been needful for us to know, then it would have been written in the Word of God. But what we do know is that he lived in poverty and obscurity in Nazareth. This is God's Son living in poverty and obscurity in Nazareth, and he did that for our sakes. It had to be that way. That's what Paul is saying. For your sake, he became poor like this. And when Christ finally came into public life, that poverty continued. What did he say? Foxes have holes and the birds of air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He depended on the gifts of his followers, upon those godly women that the gospel writer says ministered unto him of their substance. That little tidbit there, he was poor. He needed those women to minister to him for the basic necessities of life. Jesus was a very poor man, and in his poverty, he suffered hunger and thirst and weariness and all the troubles that are usually come with poverty. Why is that? Because it behooved him, listen, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren that he might, in order that he might, a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He was made like unto his brethren. All of the humiliation, all of the suffering was that he might be able to reconcile us to God. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. I will say it again, he went as far and as close as he could to our humanity without defiling himself. He was going to identify himself as close as he could with his people, and everything that he did was for that reason. I turn to the poverty of his hour, and by hour I mean the time of his death, which the Lord often referred to as my hour. Step with me just for a moment into that awful dark history. You find the Lord Jesus Christ among the olive trees of the Garden of Gethsemane. He's lying prostrate on the ground and he's covered with bloody sweat as he pleads with his father in prayer. And the writer of Hebrews says, with strong cryings and tears, he's on his face. It's in the wee hours of the morning He's calling upon God with strong cryings. It's not mumbling. It's strong cryings and tears. 
He's weeping and weeping and weeping on his face before God. There is a cup that he must drink, a very bitter cup. He must be the object of his father's wrath now. It's just around the corner. He knows it's coming. He knows what it means to be forsaken. It's not a mystery to him. Listen to him pray. Just listen to him plead with his father. I can't enter in. But when I think of the Lord on his face, he's crying his eyes out. Father, if, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Look again in that garden, and now comes Judas. He betrays the Lord with a kiss. And they bind the Lord of glory and led him away as their prisoner. It's an amazing thing when they asked, Who seek ye? We're looking for Jesus. And he says, Egoi me. Egoi me. I am. That's only used by Christ in the New Testament. It's the name Jehovah. And as soon as he said, Egoi me, they all fell down backwards. It totally knocked them to the ground. But they bind him. Drag him away. You see, that captivity of the Lord Jesus Christ was for you so that you would not be held captive by Satan. They take him to Annas and Caiaphas. Try to picture the scene in your mind if you can. Wicked men began to accuse him. This is the spotless son of God. And they're heaping all kinds of of accusations and names upon him. It's unimaginable what they're saying about the son. All of it's a false. It's a lie. And he says nothing. How poor the Lord was that night. But you and I can rejoice because Christ was falsely accused. Wrongly accused. But he was silent. So that we can say with Paul, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again, and is at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. All of that was for us, so we could be made rich. Don't you see there wasn't any other way? There wasn't any other way for us to be made rich than through Christ being made poor, because if there was a better way, it would have been decreed. Christ has meant every accusation that will ever be brought against us. It doesn't matter if it comes from Satan. It doesn't matter if it comes from our own conscience. It doesn't matter if it comes from other believers. It doesn't make any difference. Christ has dealt with every accusation 
no charge will stick. But as poverty reached deeper depths, the people mocked him. They put a reed in his hand. They put an old soldier's robe upon him. And they put together a a crown of thorns upon his head. And they mocked Christ, the prophet, by covering his eyes and slapping him and saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ. Who is it that smote thee? I've never had a bag over my head and someone strike me. Have you? I would say not. But it must be an awful, awful experience. One gospel writer says they struck him with clenched fists. It wasn't mere slaps. They were bawling up their fists and hitting him in the face as hard as they could. Can you imagine what his face looked like when they took the sack off? You've seen boxers. You've seen what happens to their eyes, their mouth. They look a sight. Have you pictured Jesus like that? He was made poor. That we could be made rich. They scourged him. The Roman cat of nine tails. Embedded with metal, glass. Slung in such a way it would wrap around his back and they would yank it and just tear open the back of his flesh. And these vile men are laughing the whole time. And he's not saying one word. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. But he died alone for you and me. They led him out to crucify him. The crowd was thirsty for blood. Crucify him, crucify him, they kept shouting. They hung the Lord upon that cross. He was made a curse for us. The curse which was upon us might be taken away forever. He was made an object of shame that we would become objects of his glory. His father forsook him that we might never be forsaken by God. His disciples ran away. They forsook him, left him all alone. Why? That we might never be left alone. He breathes his last. A time of sorrow, oh, his heart was broken, but it was the source of our greatest joy. Why? Because we died in him and our sin died in him. Our sin was punished in him. We were made rich. I turn in the third and final place to the application of this, these truths that you all know so well. It's often, you know, in the application 
that we stumble. We can gladly agree to all these gospel truths and thank the Lord for them that Christ became poor so we could become rich. But remember he became rich that we became poor that we might become rich. So I turn to look finally at the prosperous saints. The poor sinners, the poor Savior, now the prosperous saints. Any man, woman doesn't have Christ, they're very poor. They might have great wealth. I don't know who the richest, Elon Musk or Gates or whoever, that doesn't really make any difference. They're very wealthy. But they're very poor because they don't have Christ. They don't possess the true riches. How tragic that is, you know. Those who are rich need the gospel as much as those who are poor. But if you're a child of God, it matters not if you're rich or you're poor. As the children's chorus goes, there's something more, oh yes, my friend, there's something more than gold. There's something that money can't buy, and that is Christ. Let me draw four conclusions about prosperous saints from all we've seen tonight. First off, if Christ has made us rich, how foolish, how wrong it is for us to strive after the riches of this world. Makes sense to me. Proverbs 30, I don't remember the verse, but it says labor not to be rich. Don't labor to be rich. Don't labor to be rich. If God blesses you with wealth, thank him for it, but not because you labored to be wealthy. That turns the charismatic up on its head, doesn't it? But it will also turn the child of God who finds themselves working and working and working to make more and more money. And that's the big goal now, to make as much money as you can with as little work you can do. Let's get rich quickly. But if Christ has really made you rich with the true riches, then what business do we have striving after the world's riches. There's always this perpetual tendency to think that something in the world's going to satisfy us. The Lord blesses us with some gift and we turn around and make an idol out of the gift. We forget all about the giver. We are blessed by the Lord in some way and we get caught up with the blessing and forget, wait a minute, this is the blessing that the Lord has given. And I forget about him. Like those other lepers who didn't return to give thanks for the healing of Christ. We do that. And we forget that everything that God blesses us with in this world, it's just alone. 
It's a loan. They're borrowed for a while. They're his, always have been his. He can take them as he wills. Whenever he wills, however he wills, they're just borrowed. The Lord has loaned them to us. We are to be good stewards of them, to use them for his kingdom, but still, they're on loan. We have no business as God's people if we're going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, right? If we're going to look off to Jesus, as we heard this morning, if we're going to follow him and we want to be useful and we want to be holy and we we want to be happy, then guess what that means? We're going to follow Christ. And if it means poverty, it's okay. If he takes it all away, it's fine. I'm just not to be laboring and spending my time, my best effort, my best time to accumulate money. The second point of application, if Christ has made us rich, and that's what the text says, we should never, ever complain about our poverty. Right? Never cry poor mouth. It's so grieving when you hear believers cry poor mouth. Well, if you're poor, you're poor. That's, that's fine. Christ was poor. You don't have any problem with that, do you? Surely you don't. You saw tonight briefly what his poverty did and what it meant to you. So why would we ever complain if we don't have enough money to do this or that or the other thing? Thirdly, If Christ has made us rich, then we should be ready to sacrifice for him. If he sacrificed as he did to make us rich, we shouldn't have one reticence to not sacrifice for him. Shouldn't be a problem. Those churches in Macedonia on the temporal realm, that's just one area, That's why they could give out of their poverty. They have a problem with it. We're poor. We don't, as we would say, we don't have two nickels to rub together. But we're going to give sacrificially. You know, the Lord loves to see that. Because that's just like Christ. Sacrifice means... Sacrifice. It hurts. It's like that woman who cast in her two mites. She cast in more than all of them because she cast in her whole substance. She had nothing left. Now that's sacrifice. We should be a sacrificial people. Because Christ sacrificed everything for us. Final thought, if Christ has made us rich by humbling himself, how humble we ought to be. The king of glory was born in poverty, lived in poverty, died in poverty, 
Oh, that we might be made rich. But he did it all in humility. He humbled himself. Therefore, we ought to be of any people a humble people. Ask the Lord to deal with your pride. Any haughtiness. Any condescension to other people. The critical spirit. Ask the Lord to deal graciously with it. As you look to the God-man. Poor. Humbling himself. I need to walk in his train. May the Lord write that word on our hearts. May it go with you. And the Lord continue speaking long after I am gone. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we come at the end of this Sabbath day to thank thee for the word. Even though there has been a weariness of body and flesh, we know the Spirit of God is well able to bring these things back to our remembrance. Grant to thy flock here the joy of looking off to Christ, not only in his wonderful, glorious redemption, but even looking off to his poverty. We pray that thou wilt look upon us, look upon thy people here, give the sunshine of thy face, give us all grace to cry out to thee for it, and give thee no rest until we're enjoying the smile of the face of our God, that thou wilt visit thy people in mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.